History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I am here in the HAT studio with the napped flint to my long wooden stick. It's Mr. Brian Weir. Well, I mean, I prefer shaft, but yes. Brian prefers shaft. Please, that will be in the notes, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Now, last week, the Dursleater gave us episode 69, Easy Does It, in North America during 10,000 BCE. So, Brian, it looks like you're covering one specific year in prehistoric times. I'm fascinated to find out how you're going to tackle that. Yeah, the Dursleater was pretty cruel, wasn't it? Give me one year. (laughs) in prehistory. However, for this episode of History Happened Everywhere, we're going to be exploring North America during the time of 10,000 BCE, a time when people were just beginning to settle and make their lives a little easier, even in the face of incredible challenges. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at how early man used clever tricks to tackle dangerous creatures. We'll explore how they watched what they ate in order to keep a balanced diet, and we'll see how they found ways to have fun and enjoy life too, from jumping like a seal to scrawling on walls. Welcome to a world of prehistoric people, of saber-toothed cats and woolly mammoths. Welcome to the new world, to Turtle Island. Welcome to North America. So, Ryan, I'm very excited because early man, something of a recurring character in this podcast. <laughs> yes, he is, yeah. Uh, but before you get on to the glories that are the life of early man, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. uh, you have to orient us in space. Where are we going? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, like normally the Dursleater gives us a country or a nation of some sort. But this week we're doing something slightly different, which is an entire continent. Known as North America, this is a continent in the Northern Hemisphere and almost entirely within the Western Hemisphere. It is the third largest continent by area following Asia and Africa and the fourth by population after Asia, Africa and Europe. It covers an area of about 25 million square kilometres. That's 9.5 million square miles, which is 45 times larger than France and about 5% of the planet's entire total surface area. Well, that's a lot to play with. I hope you found some stuff then. (laughs) Yes, it also made research a lot trickier because there was a lot more to research. Most people think of North America as the United States and Canada sort of combined together, but there are actually 23 countries and nine dependencies in the continent, uh, which accounts for 7.5% of the world's total population. It's about 590 million people. Right, so it's big and full of people is what I'm getting. That's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, There is no national animal, but if there were one, it would probably be either the bald eagle, the bison, or the black bear. There is no flag, but the uh, North American Vexological Association, uh, which is a group who study the history and use of flags, have their own flag. (laughs) uh, Of course they do. (laughs) Yeah. And it consists of a large white V separating a blue triangle above two red triangles on either side. Basically, it creates a white V shape, which stands for vexillology. Can you imagine the duration of the meeting that it took to agree that flag? (laughs) A room full of vexillologists. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get really down into detail. 
<laughs> well, look, there is no national anthem either. But if you're looking for one song to carry the continent's message of freedom, unity and inclusivity, then you would probably do no better than This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. And it sounds a little something like this. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Guthrie wrote that song in 1930 in response to Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, which he thought was way too patriotic and unrealistic. So he wrote a song that he felt was more inclusive. And it wasn't popular at first, uh, but it gained traction during the 1960s anti-war and civil rights movements. It sort of became a bit of an anthem there. Although more recently, This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie has become something of a subject of some controversy. Since the 9-11 attacks, some politicians have been calling for the song to be banned as anti-American, saying that it promotes the horrific idea that the land belongs to everyone, when in reality, of course, focus should instead be on security and border control and keeping people out. Yeah, famously, they say that America is land of the censored. They do say that. <laughs> I'm sure I've heard that It somewhere. makes a great t-shirt. Woody Guthrie, I believe, went to war in World War II with his guitar and had written the message, this machine kills fascists, upon his guitar. That's a good fact. I need to check it. <laughs> and talking of which... North America facts! Oh, segue. <laughs> so, if you were to line up every car that had ever been made in North America, bumper to bumper, the resulting line of cars would stretch for over two million miles. Wow. Yeah, that's the distance to the moon and back four times. It's a lot of cars. It's a hell of a distance by car. Yeah, and they've got a lot of roads too. If you were to put the 20 million miles of roads and highways in North America in a straight line, it would be enough to circle the Earth almost 800 times. Well, you'd have to put it in a straight line to accommodate all the cars if you've already put in a straight line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there is an estimated 15 trillion ants in North America. Oh, good. Uh, we've jumped to ants now. <laughs> in yeah. a straight line? or Because they do like to walk in a straight line, don't they? No, but if you gathered them all together, <laughs> <laughs> they would collectively weigh around 30,000 tons. 30,000 tons of yeah, ants that's in a ball. And if you can't picture that, that's the same as a fully loaded aircraft carrier. I'm beginning to regret organising my continent in this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you were to lay all of the spaghetti produced in North America each year end to end, it would circle the earth more than seven times. I, you have to keep stepping over a rope of giant spaghetti. However, <laughs> if you were to line up all of the tacos sold... Oh, this is some sort of ethnic food contest. <laughs> each year in North America, the resulting line would be long enough to circle the earth more than 17 times. Oh, tacos beat spaghetti. Taco Tuesday. Take that, Italian-Americans. Have you lined anything else up? I'm sitting here with bated breath waiting for you to say, if you take every weasel in the North American continent and stack them on top of each other. No. <laughs> That's all the facts you got. I liked your facts. Thanks. Hey, Ryan. Oh, hey, Pete. Oh, what are you up to? Well, I'm just updating that Woody Guthrie song. What, This Land Is My Land? Yeah, only I've updated it for a modern America. Oh, interesting concept. Would you play it for me? Sure. Uh, okay. This land is my land 
that land is my land And your land is gonna be my land Unless you've got no gas, gold or oil In which case enjoy your useless land Ooh, that's pretty controversial, right? If you're a woman or you've got brown skin Ryan! This land's a corporate entity Held in trust for a global corporation Operating solely for profit And based out of a tax haven in the Cayman Islands I mean, yeah, it sort of loses it at the end there, doesn't it? Yeah, it just runs a little bit, yeah Right, do you want to know some history? I do. Okay, well, that's good, because that's why we're here. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so early man. Let's oh, start with early man. Finally, early man's time has come. <laughs> yeah. Early man in North America. He's actually called Paleo-Indian or Paleo-American. They were the first settlers and were a group of humans who were the first peoples who entered and subsequently then inhabited North America during the final glacial episode of the late Pleistocene period. According to which expert you talk to, they either crossed over by foot using a land bridge or an ice bridge, or in fact, they sailed there. But when they did this is even more of a contentious subject. The original view was that people travelled across the Bering Sea 10,000 years ago, but this date has shifted further and further back in time as new discoveries appear. In 2013, for example, a bashed-in mammoth skull was discovered that looked deliberately broken, with blunt force fractures typical of human activity, which was carbon dated as roughly 37,000 years old. Ooh. However, in 2017, an archaeological site called the Karuti Mastodon site found hammerstones and stone anvils close to the butchered remains of a single mastodon which dated to 130,000 years ago. No way, that's massive. It's a long time ago. And a bit more convincing than a mammoth that could have just fallen over and bashed his head in. Either way, early man eventually settled in various small groups across the continent, from all the way at the very top, where it's super cold, to the depths of the south, where it's quite warm. And as the climate stabilised, population numbers grew, technology advanced, and things sort of settled into a more sedentary lifestyle with improvements in agriculture, resulting in less time being spent doing hunting and gathering. Several thousand years passed, during which time megastructures are built, like the Mayan pyramids, start, which start to appear in Mexico. The Europeans appear in 985 CE, with a Norseman, Eric the Red, being the first to arrive and subsequently founding a colony in Greenland. Europeans remain relatively ignorant of North America, though, despite Eric the Red being there, until in 1492, Christopher Columbus appears and he sets out from Spain on an adventure to find a new route to the Indies, but lands instead in the Bahamas. There follows a series of subsequent explorers. In 1497, John Cabot travels down the east coast of Canada. In 1524, Giovanni da Varazzano, he explores the east coast from Florida to Newfoundland. And in 1534, Jacques Cartier, he makes a series of voyages to North America on behalf of the French crown. 
This initial activity consists mostly of sort of exploring and trade, but eventually and inevitably, routes begin to take hold, with Spain, England, France, the Netherlands and Sweden all doing their best to stake a claim on the new world. Sweden, interesting. Sweden as well. Not usually a character that we see in these things. They keep their head down, but they were there. (laughs) And this culminates in the Spanish claiming all of North and South America for themselves, with the exception of Brazil. And this is how it stays for nearly a century, until in the 17th century, when a new era of more aggressive colonialism takes hold, and most native nations find that their lands are being taken and their people being wiped out. It's hard to know exactly how many people were killed due to European colonisation, but it's estimated that pre-contact, so before the Europeans arrived, the populations were somewhere around 5 million people, and that declined to around 250,000 people within just 200 years. Boo. Uh, that, that's an understatement I've of some booed genocide. Some was, I could probably go further. But. Yeah. The 18th century was a period of revolution and not one to ignore the latest trend. 13 North American colonies join forces to claim independence from British rule. The American Revolution begins and results in the creation of the United States of America. Following independence, the land grab continues with the United States expanding rapidly out west, but also to the north into Canada, where they're prevented from taking over by the British who step in and help the Canadians fight them off. Now, the US's plans for expansion get further complicated when division erupts between the northern and the southern states over a disagreement about the right to own slaves. A civil war emerges, and it concludes in 1865 with slavery being outlawed. Hooray! Hurrah! (laughs) (laughs) I was just waiting for you to hooray that one. Yeah, and from here, the US becomes something of a powerhouse, industrialised nation. In response, in 1867, four Canadian colonies agree to federate and establish the Dominion of Canada. Meanwhile, the French Empire invades Mexico under the control of Maximilian I, but his rule lasts just three years and the French soon withdraw. The second half of the 19th century sees Canada and the United States welcome a massive influx of immigrants into the countries to help them settle their vast lands. But these lands, of course, were not unoccupied, and numerous wars were then fought against the indigenous peoples. The 20th century is marked by rapid growth and war in Europe, which cements North America's power on the global stage. And today, North America is a diverse and complex region, facing many cultural, political and economic issues. Indigenous peoples continue to face discrimination and marginalisation, but there is a sort of growing recognition of the need to address the historical injustices and work towards some sort of reconciliation. There are challenges to be faced, but many opportunities too. After all, this is the continent that put a man on the moon, discovered DNA, developed treatments for polio and smallpox, gave us the iPhone, Bob Dylan, Wayne Gretzky and Frida Kahlo. It's the home of Hollywood, Chichen Itza and the Montreal Jazz Festival. It's given us poutine, jambalaya, flaming hot Cheetos, Coca-Cola, sarsaparilla and margarita. It helped fight the Nazis. It introduced modern democracy to the world and it's the homeland to 30 Nobel prize winners so love it or hate it it's north america and it's here to stay hurrah i feel i should stand and salute and a flag should be raised ideally the vexillologist flag (laughs) flag. (laughs) never never That was good stuff, Ryan. I'm excited to find out what early man did before all that adventure. Well, let's find out after this. (laughs) 
So, Petey, easy does it. Easy does it. It makes you think of take it easy, doesn't it? Well, I also think there's a kind of a warning element to it. Of easy does it is like a calm down man. Yeah. First appearing in English uh, around the 17th century, supposedly a nautical term used by sailors to warn against reckless sailing in rough waters. Easy does it. Ah. They would yell to each other. And today, easy does it is still used as a warning. It could be used by a manager concerned for the safety of an employee climbing a rickety ladder easy does it or a parent telling their child not to eat too much pizza and ice cream all right easy does it or it could be a husband advising his overworked wife that she needs to get some rest all right look easy does it basically it's used to help encourage someone who is facing something unsafe or unhealthy to take things slowly and act in a more measured and considered manner It's a reminder for people to stay calm and focused on the present, to find peace and contentment in their lives. And so in this episode, we're going to be looking at ways in which the people of the early North American Stone Age, one, played it safe when faced with some hair-raising situations, and two, were mindful of their diets and stayed healthy, and three, how they managed their work-life balance. Their work-life balance? I've... Not too much screen time, I'm imagining. My phone is constantly telling me I spend too much time on my screen. What it doesn't realise is it's for research for this. (laughs) Stupid phone. Killing yourself for this podcast, you know that. What what should I do? Keep going. No, you're supposed to say easy does it. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Into the grave, Ryan, into the grave. Daisy here is in the kitchen, about to add three spoonfuls of sugar to her tea. Easy does it, Daisy. Sugar is a major cause of dental decay, diabetes, and divorce. Don't be a Daisy. Easy does it. Here's Donald working late in the office yet again. Easy does it, Donald. Excessive working has been shown to result in mental fatigue, physical exhaustion, and socialism. Don't be a Donald. Easy does it. Here's Danny. He's standing on an unsecured ladder whilst painting. Easy does it, Danny. Avoid accidents at work. If you die in the workplace, you could be causing your employer considerable inconvenience. Don't be a Danny. Easy does it. Okay, well, let's move on, shall we? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Section one. <laughs> Is that what you call this section? I love it. I've I'm really excited now. Section You've revved me up with section one. <laughs> so sexy, right? <laughs> okay, so let's begin by looking at how early man deployed an attitude of easy does it when it comes to dangerous situations. Okay, so the modern American bison, which we're familiar with today, is not the same bison that existed in 10,000 BCE. This was another, now extinct, animal called Bison antiquus. Ah. Yeah, and it was much larger and way more robust. At one time... More robust than More a, robust than a bison. Because I don't think fragile when I think bison, even today, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. No, they're not fragile today. Uh, these things were less fragile. Wow. Yeah. At one time, it was the most common animal in the continent. There were millions of them, with adult males reaching a shoulder height of around seven and a half feet. That's 2.3 metres tall. So that's just the shoulder. 
Yeah, and weighing up to 3,500 pounds. So just for reference, I'm six foot three. So just, I wouldn't even come up to its shoulder. This thing was so big. It was enormous. Uh, and yeah, so it would weigh up to 3,500 pounds. That's 1,588 kilograms, the same as an adult male Asian elephant. Just one. They had sharp horns on their heads, a bit like bison today, but these ones were up to three feet. That's a meter, essentially, in length, each one, and they had the ability to run at speeds of up to 35 miles per hour. That's 56 kilometers per hour, or even faster. I kind of want one. You want your own bison. Yeah, I'm going to ride around <laughs> on a bison by Antiquus. <laughs> Just keep it in, like, a, a little cupboard. Yeah. So, for early man, you might imagine this was something of a dangerous prospect. You know, if you were standing there out in the grasslands and one of these things decided it was going to rush you, charge towards you, you can't outrun that. I would regret wearing my red cloak that day. Yes, you would, yeah. And a pointy stick is not going to provide much in the way of any kind of protection, right? Correct. Yet, bison was still one of the main animals that early man enjoyed eating. A number of sites across North America show evidence of bison bones with cut marks made by stone tools. And no less than in one site in Colorado, where in 1957, two archaeologists named Sigurd Olsen and Gerald Chubbuck, uh, they stumbled upon a prehistoric bed of bones. And as they dug deeper into the site, they discovered that the bones were the remains of nearly 200 bison, dating to around 10,000 BCE. Each, you must have been delighted I when you discovered was. this. <laughs> yeah. Each of the animals had been killed, butchered, and consumed by Paleo-Indian hunters, specifically the Folsom culture, which lived in the area around that time. At first, they thought that this was perhaps a midden, which we've talked about in the past, a rubbish dump, with the cast-offs from all of these multiple kills that they'd made dumped into the pit, perhaps over many generations. But as they analysed the bones, they soon realised that all of these animals had died at precisely the same time. No. Yeah, and the, the researchers had to then ask themselves, well, how is it possible that a small group of hunters armed with just stone spears could have possibly massacred so many of these giant animals? So they tested to see if the animals had died of disease and had just been scavenged rather than hunted, but analysis of the bones showed no signs of illness. So then they thought, well, then perhaps several groups of hunters had worked together, a collaboration of sorts between communities. But after further research, they finally realised something even more remarkable had happened. And it's not aliens, which was my <laughs> <Spoilers>. first hope. <laughs> now, ancient bison were social animals. They formed vast herds, literally in the millions. And they ranged across the grasslands and the river valleys, migrating every season, searching for food and for water. And it was this migratory behaviour that made them predictable. So early human hunters knew where they were going to be and at what specific times. And this meant that early man had the opportunity to am ambush the bison in a much more considered and much less dangerous way. They devised a method called game jumping, whereby they would deliberately cause a stampede and drive the animals forward in huge numbers towards a 12-foot deep trench which they'd previously dug out of the ground. Unable to stop, the bison would then fall into the hole, one on top of the other, and suffer fatal injuries as they crushed, kicked, and stabbed each other to death with their horns. And when the dust settled, the hunters would simply step up to the edge of the pit and dispatch any of the remaining living bison with their spears. Simple stuff, right? Right. Easy I'm writing this it. down for my post-apocalypse life when I have to go out and hunt, <laughs> hunt bison. Yeah. And now this was a much easier job, far less dangerous than tackling a bison head-on, let alone 
200 bison head on. And when the creatures were dead, the hunters then set about using an array of stone tools like scrapers and knives to butcher and process the carcasses. Now, despite the bison's great numbers, it eventually went extinct around 10,000 years ago, so just 2,000 years after this time period. The reasons for which are unknown. There are some who think that overhunting like this by humans was a contribution to the decline, but more recent evidence seems to conclude that a traumatic change in the climate was ultimately the cause of their extinction. But while they were there, so was early man, using their ingenuity to face the threat of the hunt and make life easier for themselves by harvesting huge numbers of bison and providing an important food source for their community. That must be an amazing dilemma for early man, if you like, because you look at this, what is essentially a house with horns, and you think, <laughs> on the one hand, that's scary and dangerous, but on the other hand, if I can get just one of them, we'll be munching for quite a while. Quite a while, yeah. There's a lot of meat on a bison. Right, worth the risk, I'd say. Yeah, indeed. A long, long time ago, Ugg can still remember how that bison made us chase it miles. And Ugg knew if Ugg had his chance, I'd spear that bison with my lance and maybe try his eating for a while. But now the memory makes Ugg shiver with every spear thrust Ugg delivers. The beast took just one more step. That bison wasn't dead yet. Ugg can't remember if Ugg cried when suddenly Ugg realized Bison, he was still alive. The day the hunter died. So bye-bye, Mr. Paleo Guy. Drove the bison to the clifftop, cause the clifftop was high. But the bison turned and with a look in his eye, Ugg thought this could be the day that Ugg dies. This could be the day that Ugg dies. No! Ah! No! Ah! Ah! It's hungry! Ah! All right, section two. Oh, I love it. I love your naming convention. Thanks, man. I just don't know what's coming next. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've looked at the ways in which Paleo-Indians navigated the dangerous world of hunting, and now we're going to see how North Americans were mindful of what they ate. So when it comes to food, saying easy does it can be a way of reminding someone to eat slowly and in moderation, right? Rather than rushing to finish a meal or overeating. Right. If you eat too quickly or overeat, it can lead to discomfort, indigestion, or even more serious health problems. By taking it easy and being mindful of how much and how quickly we eat, we can avoid this and enjoy our meals in a more relaxed and comfortable way. 
Overeating, though, wasn't really likely a huge issue for (laughs) early North Americans, right? Food wasn't available in great supply, and it certainly wasn't full of the addictive sugars, salts, and fats that we're used to today. But Easy Does It can also be used to encourage someone to be cautious when cooking, so as not to ruin the dish or make a mess. This is especially important if your supplies are low and you can't risk burning something or ruining your remaining supplies. Ruined the meal. (laughs) (laughs) And that was likely a much bigger issue in 10,000 BCE. (laughs) And so in the spirit of that, I'm going to present a small menu of foods that were available to early man at this time, or at least the best approximation (laughs) of foods that might have been available then. So let's start with meat. Hurrah! I love meat. Yeah, well, so did they. (laughs) Uh, As we've discussed already, paleo-Indians relied on hunting. They targeted large game animals like bison, elk, and even mammoths and mastodons, a type of elephant. And we know this because in 1977, Emmanuel Manis was digging a pond in his property when he uncovered the remains of a mastodon which had a spear point embedded in one of its ribs. Ooh. Yeah. The point made from the bone of another mastodon, which just seems... That's just rubbing it in, isn't it? It's just so (laughs) cruel. Yeah. It was just slightly older than our time period, at 13,000 years old. But it is evidence that the mastodon must have been hunted and killed by humans then. And given that it was in the past, it makes sense that they would be doing it in 10,000. BCE. So anyway, having killed an animal, early man would have then cooked the meat by roasting it over an open fire. And we have some to try today. Oh, some ma- mammoth? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sadly I couldn't get hold of any mammoth. So I've been Funny to the that. zoo and do you remember they used to have elephants? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was able to track down and slaughter a bison. Yes! <laughs> yeah, so we have some bison meat to eat. Awesome! That's yeah. really exciting. All right, let's, uh, let's get some bison. Did you chase it into a ditch? I did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hold the phone. Holding it. He's off and going. And I'm back. All right, here we go. Okay, so in front of you, Pete, what have you got? That is a juicy piece of cooked meat. Uh, red meat looks like kind of steakish. Yep, it's a steak. This is classic American bison rather than um, bison, bison antiquist. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Cutting into it, I'm going to open it up. Oh, that's cooked through. That's nice because I'm not a massive bloody red meat kind yeah. of guy. Okay. Oh, that looks pretty cool, good actually. Yeah, it's, look at uh, that. Would you describe it as slightly different than beef? Yeah, it is slightly different than beef. It's a uh, darker, darker, color, kind of a. I want to say brownier rather mm. than a. It's got a. Let's have a look. I'll do you. A, I'll cut you a slice. Thank you. A, Just a small piece. Yeah. Okay. Okay, here we go. Bison, bison. Here we go. So this is unflavoured because no salt, no pepper, mm. no hot sauce. That's quite steaky to me. It's quite nice. Mm. It's not um, not too... That it's is quite richer. soft. It's quite um, tender. Now, obviously, this would have been cooked not in an air fryer, but it over a, a fire. It would have been roasted. And yeah, they couldn't get enough of this stuff. Mm. That's not bad at all. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's delicious. I really enjoyed that. That was tasty. I'll chop this into bits while you... Well, actually, I was going to save some of that for later, and I'm going to put it in the refrigerator. But early North Americans didn't have that luxury, and so they had to get kind of creative when it came to preserving foods. Analysis of food remains on sites across North America show that early man utilised a number of techniques to do this, like drying, smoking, and fermenting. Sometimes constructing underground storage pits lined with grass or clay to keep 
their food cool and safe from the weather and hungry animals, critters and stuff. Now, to smoke meat, they created large wooden racks, which they laid thin strips of the meat on, which could then be placed over a smoky fire. The heat of the smoke uh, dehydrated the meat and it killed off any of the nasty bacteria and microorganisms that might otherwise cause it to spoil. And best of all, the smoke itself contains a compound called phenols, which have an antimicrobial property that also goes towards preserving the meat. And depending on how the food was then stored, it could last for several months, even up to a year. That's good because if you, when you've got a ditch full of giant bison that you've just mm. killed and you've had a couple of steaks, you don't want to have lost the rest of it, do you? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I actually have made some dehydrated bison using some of that steak earlier. Um, I actually made some and dehydrated it. I need to know how you've done this <laughs> before I go anywhere near it. <laughs> in a sock, in my wardrobe for a month. No, no, no. Okay, so here we have a ramekin of what looks like beef jerky. That's exactly right. Essentially, it's beef jerky. Uh, well, bison jerky. Bison jerky. All right, here Put we go. Put it in your mouth. I'm going to do this as yes. an act of great faith. Here we go. Worse. It's very jerky. It's jerky. I'm used to jerkies that have been flavoured. So again, I'm assuming this is an unflavoured mm. just meat. But the more I'm chewing it, the more actually a flavour is coming out. Because you need water to get flavour, don't you? Mm. I mean, it's nice and light. Like, it's easy to carry. And if you were to take just a small clump of this, like a handful of this, that's a good day meal. I can imagine roaming around the grasslands with a pouch of this thinking I'm going to be all right. Mm, for sure. Actually, I really like that. Even without any flavour. Need salt. <laughs> <laughs> and now, talking of smoked food, another typical early North American food source that was often smoked was fish. From the icy waters of Alaska to the rivers of the eastern woodlands, early North Americans used hooks, nets and spears to catch fish of all shapes and sizes. Very few fish hooks have been found that date 10,000 BCE, but some examples do exist. For example, a group of modern archaeologists digging on the uh, Channel Islands off the coast of California discovered several small fish hooks from exactly our time period, which had been carved from the bones of birds and mussel shells, each one shaped into a J or a U shape and polished to create a smooth surface with a sharp point or a barb at the end classic fish hook classic fish hook i mean you can imagine can't you a little mussel shell over ten thousand years would easily be <laughs> smashed a bit so it's amazing that we're even able to find these but what were they catching with these well in the pacific northwest and parts of the northern rockies early fishermen had access to a large variety of fish but to make life easier for themselves they would often fish for salmon which during to their spawning runs would swim upstream in large numbers to reach a breeding ground and because they concentrate in one area, they could be caught using nets, spears or traps. And as such, salmon became an important food source for many indigenous cultures. And so let's try some smoked salmon. Okay, and I'm back. And uh, in front of you, what have you got? Uh, this is a smoked salmon. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a lovely ambery sa well, salmon colour. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think how to describe the colour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, Nice and fresh, straight from the stream. I, I feel... I fought a bear for that this morning. 
I don't <laughs> doubt it. You had to over your way past a Kodiak or two yeah. in order to get it. Are you going to have a little bit of this? Yes. Now, I, you know me. I don't Not particularly like a fish. That's a lot of fish that you've given me there. So I'm going <laughs> to yeah. try some of it and uh, we shall see. I didn't used to like fish and it was smoked salmon that was my gateway to fish, actually. Interesting. I've heard that. It's a gateway fish. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm going to give it a try. Oh, that's nice. Mm. It's like ham. It's like a wet, watery ham. When? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Salmon is like wet ham. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. That was, that was good, though. That's actually not too bad. Uh, ham of the river, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> but eating just meat and fish doesn't make for a healthy and balanced diet, Pete does it it makes for a diet that you won't shut up about if north american paleo eaters of that i've come across have anything to go by <laughs> yeah exactly the carnivore diet yeah uh, but what else did the north americans eat well in the 1930s some lucky researchers exploring a series of caves in oregon known as the paisley caves found some fossilized feces which they dated back to 10,000 bce nice yeah. Now, these faeces, known as coprolite, was later analysed using sophisticated techniques to look for DNA and was soon found to have been excreted by humans. Human poop. The study revealed the presence of parasites, bones of small rodents, reptiles, fish and a variety of plant foods, which proved that as well as being expert hunters, early North Americans were skillful foragers too, boosting their diet with a variety of leafy plants, nuts, berries, and seeds. Things like... Oh, here we go. All right, here oh, we go. right, this is great. Yeah, a little, little collection. This looks like genuinely on the advert where it says part of a balanced diet, the kind <laughs> of thing they show you. <laughs> exactly right. So what you've got there is you've got a pot of sunflower seeds, you have hazelnuts, You've got pinon nuts, which are like pine nuts, which you probably had, blueberries and blackberries, all of which were available to early man in 10,000 BCE. Nice. So why don't you try some of those? What, okay, you got, what are you going to try first? Uh, try this one. What's this? The sunflower seeds? Yeah, that's right. Sunflower, sunflower seeds. seeds. Here we go. All right. Let's go try some of these mm. sunflower seeds. Sunflower seeds. Pass the test. Pass the taste test. Mm. Okay. Next Very up. Good. Hazelnuts. Hazelnuts. I'm yeah. confident about these. Yeah, you like a hazelnut. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be better if you smushed it into a nice chocolatey uh, spread. Chocolate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Mm. Well, that's a nice nut. <laughs> quite sweet, actually. I'm a big fan. Early man had a good diet. Early man knew what was what. Yeah. Right, now the pine nut impersonator. Pin on nuts. Oh, they're quite sweet as well. Oh, surprisingly sweet. Yeah. Right, blueberry. Love a blueberry. Dessert. He's gone straight for dessert. That's a super fruit. Is a super fruit. Oh, I'm antioxidizing already. Fresh and youthful. Yeah, so you've got blueberries there and you've got big old blackberries. And a big old blackberry or two. So I your I thumb. A blackberry in a... Oh, oh what, that's good stuff. What a lovely dessert. Mm. That is very good. Right. In terms of recipes, though, early man would sometimes make a basic porridge or a gruel by using stone tools to crush or grind the seeds and nuts that we've just eaten into a coarse meal, which they then mix with water, make a little porridge. Porridge. The berries were often picked fresh, but like the fish and the meat, they were often dried too for later use. Mm, Delicious. Good. Extra sweet. And while there's no evidence to prove what they drank to wash the food 
food down, we do know that many indigenous peoples had an ancient cultural history of infusing various plants and herbs in boiling water to make a variety of cures and remedies to treat wounds and illnesses. And it is more than likely, therefore, that Paleo-Indians in 10,000 BCE brewed teas using the various plants and herbs that they had around them, like mint, nettles, or even pine needles. And we've got some pine needle tea to try right now. Oh, and that's definitely the one I hope you were going to say. (laughs) Not mint or delicious tea. So we've had a big day hunting the bison on the plains. I've come home to the cave or shack or... Whatever. Whatever place I'm living in. And you're going to make me a nice cup of... Oh, I'm parched, love. Nice cup of pine needle tea. Oh, let's have it. How many pine needles did you bring home with you? Well, I mean, Enough I thought you'd be happy with the bison, but fine. <laughs> I didn't stop by the shop and get the pine needles. Here we go. It's in our lovely History Happened Everywhere mug, available at com forward slash merch. Uh, it looks a little bit like the urine of an unwell person. Or a bison. <laughs> it's It's hot, so do be careful. It doesn't, I was going to say it doesn't smell, does it smell of anything? (laughs) It smells of pine. Oh, does it? Yeah. That tastes of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not horrible. It's it's really not much of anything, I have to say. Yeah, I I mean, I guess there is a bit of play. It's distinguishable from water, but But not not in a good way. (laughs) Okay, and one final point then, Peter, while you're sipping your pine needle tea. In terms of making their lives easier, many researchers believe that early North Americans experimented with plant cultivation too. So they selectively gathered and propagated wild plants and gradually started to domesticate crops, basically transforming the way that humans interacted with their environment. Well, good good on them. Easy does it. Yeah. Section three. (laughs) Okay, so in this section, uh, we're going to see how Easy Does It reflects the way early man in North America managed their work-life balance. Because it wasn't all work, work, work. No, I mean, once you've trapped your bison for the day, what what more do you have to do? What else are you going to do? Make a cup of pine tea, sit back, relax. Exactly. In fact, one of the things that the early man used to do in prehistoric times was to play. Right. There, there is no direct archaeological evidence of any games being played. Researchers do believe that early North Americans had a variety of sports and games at their disposal. Within most social groups, there is a natural human tendency towards competition, with a healthy need to establish who within the tribe is the strongest, the bravest, the fastest, or the smartest. And early man was likely no different, right? From foot races to archery competitions, they were most likely competing with each other in a variety variety of different sports. Twister. Definitely Twister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It would have fostered a sense of community, friendly rivalry, as well as simply just being a break from killing bison. Yeah, bison's hard work at the end of the day, isn't it? Exactly. So one example of a sport believed to have been played in 10,000 BCE is the knuckle hop or the seal jump. (laughs) Now, said to originate from a unique style of hunting by the indigenous peoples who lived in the Arctic regions of North America, the knuckle hop, or the seal jump, describes the way in which the hunters would try to sneak up whilst hunting seals. 
So the knuckle hop mimics the way that the seal moved itself, right? So they wouldn't be spooked if you just walked on two legs towards it. If you get down on the floor and sort of hop towards it ah, like a seal, yeah. they're like, ah. I'm just another seal. Just Don't mind me. <laughs> so this involves the hunter getting down on the floor into a plank or a push-up position uh, on their fists and their toes and then leaping forward from that position again and again <laughs> so that your hands and feet remain off the floor as you jump, hopping you closer and closer towards the seal. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a jumping push-up. I did a press-up once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now imagine trying to jump at the same time. Yeah, it didn't end well. Yeah, well, quite. So the further you could knuckle-hop, the better your chance was of catching a seal. It is a genuine test of strength, agility, and endurance to be able to do the knuckle-hop for any prolonged period of time. And so it's not a shock to learn that human nature meant that it soon turned competitive, with the youngest and the strongest all wanting to prove themselves in front of their peers that they could knuckle-hop further than the rest of them. And that's what happened. Chicks dig it. They totally do. Watch him hop. <laughs> and that's what's happened because the knuckle hop or the seal jump has been a game played by those living in the northernmost parts of North America for thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, it is still played today by descendants of those early people. Wow. The, the Inuit or Eskimo. In fact, the knuckle hop is now a regular sports event, with the world record being held by Canadian athlete Chris Stipdonk, <laughs> who was able to jump 206 feet, that's 62 metres, in the 2022 Indigenous Summer Games. Wow. Yeah. Chris actually retired from the knuckle hop in 2023 after winning gold in the Arctic Games and coming incredibly close to beating his own record. And he said... It's incredibly difficult to do. It takes up a lot of time training. I've done the knuckle hop about six times now, and for the most part, I've improved each time. But you know, my hands are in good shape, and I want them to stay that way. So it's time for me to call it quits on that event. He also added, I'm exhausted. I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that last sentence was the main reason. <laughs> The rest of it was just preamble, really. <laughs> uh, but sport wasn't the only form of method of entertainment for early man, right? In northwest Nevada is a dry lake bed known as Winnemucca Lake. Now, it's about 45 kilometres, that's 28 miles long, and about 7 kilometres or 4.5 miles wide. So it's a big lake. And today, the lake is dry, thanks to a dam that was built in the 1930s. But in the past, it was said to have been at least 26 metres high, right? That's 85 feet deep. Now, this made it an important stop for migrating birds, which then consequently made it a perfect ground for early man to live and hunt. Let the eggs come to you. Exactly. So at the western end of this lake are several limestone boulders, which show some curious carvings known as petroglyphs. Now, first described by Francis and Robert E. Connick in 1992, the petroglyphs include simple, straight lines and swirls, as well as more complex shapes that resemble trees, flowers, the veins of a leaf, and even an intricate diamond pattern. Carved about 0.4 to 0.8 inches, about a centimetre or two, deep into the rock, the smallest of the images are about 8 inches, 20 centimetres in width, while the largest can be up to 3 feet long. It's thought that hard volcanic rock was used to chip away at the softer 
carbonate formations within the boulders themselves. And later studies by geochemist Larry Benson and his team of researchers from the aptly named University of Colorado Boulder uh, revealed <laughs> that the rocks themselves were between 16,000 and 14,000 years old. They then looked to establish a window of when the lake level was low enough to allow access to these rocks. And they concluded that the water line was sufficiently low for someone to access these rocks from 14,800 and 13,200 years ago, which basically places it almost exactly in 10,000 BCE. Now, the meaning of the carvings are unknown, but the suggestion is that they represent meteorological symbols such as clouds and lightning. And it just goes to show that when these ancient people weren't just surviving, they were being artists too, showcasing their creativity and skill, connecting with their cultural heritage and providing themselves with a sense of fulfilment and satisfaction beyond the daily grind. I like to think of Ugg revealing his work and a bunch of people wafting along with a glass of pine tea and going, <laughs> oh, I wonder what the artist was thinking when he did this. <laughs> Tree. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about some of the cultures that existed in North America in 10,000 BCE, and we've looked at some of the evidence found to show how work and leisure played a part in Stone Age man's life. But much of this evidence is limited because we don't have a tremendous wealth of information left behind by these people, right? Everything they had just turned to dust over the years. Nothing was written down. It's hard to pinpoint with accuracy anything that actually happened precisely in 10,000 BCE. Only we actually do. Because a vast wealth... left a diary behind. <laughs> Pretty much. So a vast wealth of information was catalogued by two men in the 1960s. And much of what they found centred on one particular civilization in North America, which was home to a remarkable group of people who created one of the most advanced urban developments of its time. Now, it's unclear where precisely the settlement is based, but artwork of the period shows people living in an area filled with rocky hills, canyons and large rock formations, which likely indicates like some sort of location near the American Southwest, probably around Arizona or Utah. Now, known collectively as Cobblestone County, uh, this was a civilization that was made up of a surprising number of settlements, all near each other, including sites called Red Rock, Granite Town and Arkenstone, some of which are believed to have been home to humans for as long as two million years. But it's in 10,000 BCE, our time period, where we see the golden age of civilization there. Densely populated, it's estimated to have around 50,000 people living there. From a combination of different cultures, this was an area of remarkable peace and prosperity. And it's likely this mix of different culture backgrounds, all living peacefully together, was the main reason why it developed into such an incredibly sophisticated social structure. They had their own customs, their own traditions, their own social hierarchies, even holding like formal events like uh, modern secret societies where men would gather together and wear elaborate hats made from the skin and horns of water buffalo. That sound like a good night out. Yeah. They even used a common language that combined prehistoric sounds with what we would consider to be modern-day slang. They utilised stone tools like other Paleo-Indian cultures, but the difference here is they were also super advanced in their understanding of technology. They utilised the resources around them to make their lives easier and more comfortable. They used levers and pulleys to quarry rocks and minerals. They domesticated animals and harnessed them not just for transport, but for a variety of different purposes, like security, maintaining hygiene, and even in construction. 
But of all the sites that have been studied, there's one site where we find the most compelling evidence of the people and their ways of life. Now, a lot has been written about this place, but perhaps the most remarkable thing is that unlike much of prehistory, in this case, we actually have details on some of the people who lived there, which is incredible. So in one of these places in called Arkenstone on the 2nd of February, 10,041 BCE, an early North American couple called Edna Hardrock and Edward Gladstone welcomed the birth of their first and only child, a baby boy who they named Frederick Joseph. And to help the boy have the best start in life, the young family relocated from their home in Arkenstone to a nearby settlement called Bedrock. <laughs> What? Carry on. <laughs> Where they changed their family name first to Flagstone and then finally to Flintstone. Now, as a young boy, Fred... F You're right. Yeah, fine. Okay. Carry on. Now, as a young boy, Fred Flintstone was educated at Bedrock High School, where he met two people <laughs> who would go on to become essentially significant parts of his life. It was his best friend, Bernard Matthew Rubble, also known as Barney, and his future wife, Wilma Anna Slaghoople. <laughs> Slaghoople. Yes, that was her name, yeah. It was actually Pebble originally, and she changed it to Slaghoople. Well, you would. Yeah. <laughs> now... As a young adult, Fred and his friend, who he called Barney, were working as bellhops at a holiday resort when they met Wilma and her best friend, Elizabeth Jean McBricker, otherwise known as Betty, who were also working at the resort selling cigarettes. Now, side note, smoking went on to play a significant role in the lives of Fred, Wilma, Betty and Barney, most notably because they were paid to appear in a commercial to sort of extol the virtues of Winston brand cigarettes, saying, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. Now, Fred and Wilma fell in love, and so did Betty and Barney. And eventually they were both married. Now, recent research suggests that Fred and Barney then joined the army, fighting to save their loved ones from an enemy known as the Tree People. But they returned from the war jaded and suffering from the horrors that they witnessed. Now, gaining employment as a geological engineer at the Rockhead and Quarry Cave Construction Company, which was later renamed the Slate Rock and Gravel Company, Fred spent much of his life then working as a Bronto crane operator. He moved large rocks and boulders around at the local quarry and he tried to sort of navigate around the upper management. Now, later in life, Fred sought out other employment too. He worked for the Bedrock Police Department. He was a news reporter, a baseball player and a circus performer, amongst many other jobs. But these were often short-lived, thanks to Fred's natural ability to sort of frequently find himself in a good deal of misadventure. Just like almost like some like almost 30 minutes at a time. Yeah, exactly. A really <laughs> short amount of time. <laughs> But the notable thing about the life of Fred Flintstone, and in reference to our topic of Easy Does It, is how he so accurately reflects that Easy Does It attitude. He longs for a simpler life where work comes second to finding time to relaxing and enjoying life. That's not to say that he doesn't work hard to provide for his family, but he also knows the importance of enjoying the simple things in life too. For example, there are reports that when the work siren signalled the end of his shift at the quarry where he worked, Fred would shout out a unique expression of joy, saying, Yabba Dabba Do. Oh, that's a, what could that mean? Well, I don't know. Just a, like an expression, I guess, like a yeah. Okay. Yabba, yeah. yabba dabba do. Yabba dabba do. Yabba dabba do. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what that means, but I think that's it's just guesswork based on, on <laughs> research that's been done. Uh, he was often seen uh, spending time with his family and his friends. He would visit the uh, local drive-in movie theatre. He would go to <laughs> picnics. 
Is it? I don't get why you're laughing. These. Yeah, just they're so they're so much like us in many ways, aren't they? Just like <laughs> us. I went to picnics. He played golf. He even competed in bowling leagues under the pseudonym of Twinkle Toes, right? which is a nickname given to him because of the way he sort of tiptoed towards the pins before he released the bowling ball. Anyway, his home was full of gadgets to make life easier. He employed service animals like a Snorkosaurus as his <laughs> watchdog. He had a woolly mammoth as his shower, a pelican to wash his clothes, an octopus to wash his dishes, and several birds, including a woodpecker to play musical records and a small bird in a box to wake him up in the morning like an alarm clock. But he also embodied the spirit of Easy Does It through positive attitudes towards life. He frequently faced uh, a number of difficult challenges like marital disputes, conflicts with his boss and, and getting locked out of the house when he put the pet saber-toothed cat out for the night. But he almost always maintained a sense of perspective and humour about it. For example, in one episode of his life, Fred got hit on the head and he develops this split personality, which was you know, more serious and hardworking. But ultimately, he realised that work wasn't the thing that made him happy. It was his positive attitude and home life that brought the real joy. And so, through his positive attitude, love of leisure and ability to balance both work and play, I think Fred Flintstone is the embodiment of Easy Does It in North America in 10,000 BCE. Well, that'll yabba-dabba-do for me. That's very good. <laughs> So there you go. Fascinating stuff. That is amazing. It's remarkable that it's such such an early period was so well documented. It's incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. The wealth of information that was actually available out there if you look for it. You you, you have these for a while, <laughs> I must admit. <laughs> Barney, you and I are true. Don't ever speak to me again. We are finished. I'm returning your lawnmower, your rake, your head shears, and your hose. Okay, Alan. Uh uh, that was excellent. I think you really captured the essence of Fred there, so well done. Oh, thanks very much. Now, there's just one last thing we want to get down before we wrap. Okay, what's that? Well, we think the Fred character needs, like, a catchphrase. Something that really captures his zest for life, you know? Oh, okay, no problem. No, so some... Here we go, yeah! Something like that? Yeah, like that. Uh, we're really hoping for something more unique to Fred, though. You know, not something that anyone might just say. Right, so some kind of joyful exclamation? Yeah, exactly. Okay, um... Zim Zam Badooty! Yeah, that's more along the line of things, but uh, have you got anything else? Okay, uh, it's Wamble Bamble Boom Time! Um. Bibbidi Booty Day! Uh. Wimble Wamble Kablooey! Um. Yakabim Tiddly! Yeah, look, that's not really working for us. Um, look, maybe we should just take a short break. I, I ordered some seafood, so just feel free to grab a crab or two. Oh, actually, I'm allergic to seafood. Well, okay, we could go out and grab a barbecue. Oh, but I can't walk because my shoe's broken. Well, I'll fix that up for you. Oh, how did you do that? We'll add a dab of glue. I tried that and it didn't work. Okay, well, we'll just nab a cab for two. Ooh, can I bring my dog with us? You want to drag a lab with you? If I can. Sure, we'll grab a cab that's blue and cruise the avenue past the drab old zoo and chat about the view. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, this has inspired me. I think I've got it. I've got it. Here we go, quickly. Uh, okay, in your own time. Scooby-dooby-doo. Nah. Okay, Peter. Well, there you go. Another episode down, and it's time to turn on the Dursalator. I'm ready to be Dursalated. You've inspired me. That was excellent. With a tricky, tricky time period, I thought you really nailed it. Well, thank you very so much. Now I'm excited to, to match your achievements. I'm excited to see what you get. So here we go. For episode 70, let's roll the Dursalator. Okay, so your place is... 
Papua New Guinea. I've heard of Papua New Guinea. I could point it out on a map. Could you? Yeah. I could not. I couldn't do more than that. <laughs> so this is our voyage of discovery. Papua New Guinea, that'd be fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I mean, I guess it depends on the time. So let's find out your time. Here we and go. And your time is... Ooh, wild card. Ah, one of my favourite times. We haven't had that in a while. Remind us of the rules. The rules are that we roll the final category in this case, and then I have one minute to select my choice of, in this case, time, time period. period. Okay. All right, so let's do the topic then. And your topic is... <laughs> no way. It's wild card. Well, the rules are... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Wow, two wild cards. Oh. I, I, I cursed it by saying we haven't had one in a while. <laughs> All right, so I guess you've got to pick... You've got 60 seconds to pick both your time and your top. Or do I get 60 seconds for each? No. And your time starts now. Okay, right. Time period has to be modern. Papua New Guinea sounds dangerous for anything less than modern. What's the most modern thing? How about 10,000 BC? Yeah, how about not that? <laughs> I'm going to go with... Yeah. No, I don't want a decade, do I? I'm going to say the, Go on. the 21st century. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course it would be. That's pretty cunning. Okay, so Papua New Guinea, 21st century. And your what's your topic? Topic is... Oh, this is hard. Cause you I know wanna, nothing about Papua I know. New Guinea. <laughs> I don't want to try to say politics, but nothing happened. Or religion and they're all atheists or something. <laughs> yeah. um, the famous I think, atheists of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe something like red in the Atlantic. Yes. Red was quite good. It was abstract enough to cover a lot. All right. I'm going to choose a colour, but not red. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, don't do red again. <laughs> I think we've done blue as well. Okay. So I think the next colour has to be green. I'm going to choose green. Okay. So for episode 70, we have got green in Papua New Guinea in the 21st century. I love it. Good luck, Petey. Thanks, mate. Okay, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you would like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on this show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through the website hhepodcast.com or email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Now, if you're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or appropriately Mastodon, yeah. <laughs> you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts we didn't use, photos from the show, pictures of Pete stuffing his face with bison, stuff like that. Yeah, you'll definitely see the juicy bison. It's worth a look. And of course, we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. And thanks to you, Petey. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... Ugh, 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 ugh. History happened everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. I kill elk. You make food. Yes, I make food. I want mustard on. But you said was elk. Yes, but want mustard on. But you kill elk. I cook elk. Yes, but want mustard on. But elk, not mustard on. Ah, no, no, not mustard on. Mustard on. Ah, Ryan, get it. <laughs> you want mustard on with mustard on. Ryan, you cause mammoth misunderstanding. You are idiot. Bison, bison, we're gonna eat some bison.